All right, turn with me to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. And as you're turning there, I want to go over a couple of dates um, that will help to just give you a time stamp of where we are in um, the record. So they've got a slide for you. But in 1805 is a year we believe Joseph died. And in 1526 is when Moses was born. So obviously we covered that there in uh, chapter 2. And then Moses flees in 1486 or 40 years later. So 40 years of age, he tries to bring deliverance there in Egypt and has to leave. He heads to Midian. And um, this is where we're going to pick up. Exodus 3 is the year is 14. 46, when God is going to call him. It's the same year in which the exodus will take place and just one year prior to the Lord giving him the Ten Commandments in the same place, geographically speaking, that we're going to read about here in the opening of chapter 3. But God is going to raise up his servant Moses to deliver Israel and God is going to reveal his name and he's going to announce to him that I'm going to deliver your people. I'm going to plunder the Egyptians. You're going to come. You're going to worship me here and I'm going to take you into a fruitful and a land flowing with milk and honey. So this is what we find in chapter 3 and we will read this and apply it to our own hearts and our lives. But let's begin at verses 1 through 6 where we find Moses having a divine encounter with the Lord. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock back to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight. Why the bush does not burn. So when the Lord had turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet for the place where you stand is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look upon God. So we find him um, in the back side of the desert of Midian. And um, this would be basically west. This was kind of how, this was a way to refer to west. So if you were um, living at this point in time in this part of the world, um, if you were giving compass directions, you would always face east. So therefore, whatever's behind you would be west. So in making this statement on the back of the desert, is a western kind of direction that he is referring um, to. We got a map up there just to kind of show you where Midian is and give you an idea. You have those two bodies of water that come up like antennas, if you will, um, the Red Sea. And um, on the right-hand side, the eastern side, you'll see the name Midian. I don't know how well you can see it from where you're sitting. Um, and then, of course, then Egypt is going in a northwest direction up towards the Mediterranean. So he's going to leave from uh, Egypt and he comes to Midian. And while Midian, he goes to the back of the desert. So we don't, we can't say with biblical certainty where that is. And it's a significant question because wherever that place is, wherever Mount, of Hor Mount Horeb is, that is also Mount Sinai. 
That's where the Ten Commandments were given. So the burning bush experience, the Ten Commandments, and all the rest happen in the same location. And this is where he's going to bring the children of Israel out of Egypt to this location. So um, if you look on a map, most maps will tell you that there's uh, many locations. It's not uncommon to find a map that will have maybe 10 different question marks for possible sites for Mount Sinai or the Mount of Horeb or the Mountain of God. The traditional site is at the bottom of that Sinai pencil between the two antennas going south. There's a spot there that is the traditional site, but there are sites on over closer to Midian and into Saudi Arabia and closer to Egypt and all over the place. So uh, just a little bit about the geography there. But what is significant is that he is going to bring the children of Israel back to the site and they are going to worship there. But he sees this, this bush that's burning. And there's those that um, always are looking to provide a physical, natural answer for whatever is read as supernatural because they don't believe that the supernatural can happen. They're materialists. And so if they can't imagine it and see it in the physical world, then if we read of something supernatural happening, they immediately want to dismiss this. And so what they'll say for this is, well, you know, there's bushes over there at this part of the world at a certain time of year when they bloom, they look like fire from a distance. They're so red. And so um, this is what Moses saw. But there's a problem with that. He's been living there for 40 years feeding sheep and goat in the wilderness. He knows every plant and every type of vegetation that is anywhere in that area. He would have to after 40 years of tending the sheep and the, and the goats of Jethro. Not only that, this bush is talking to him. Okay, so this is different. This is not just some natural experience. This is a supernatural experience. And he meets the angel of the Lord. That phrase maybe is new to some of you. And when you see the phrase angel of the Lord, don't think of Michael or Gabriel. Although those are um, angels um, and they are servants of the Lord. The phrase angel of the Lord is referring to a manifestation of God that we call a theophany. So a theophany is when God manifests himself in physical form or in a personal manifestation to a man, to, to a woman. There's an, this manifestation. And so that is a theophany. It is God manifesting himself there. This is an incredibly significant event. But what takes place here is he is going to be called into ministry and sent off to be the voice and the deliverer of Israel out from Egypt. But we read that as he was coming near, the Lord says, all right, that's, that's, that's close enough. Take off your sandals. The place that you are on is holy ground. And so he removes his sandals. And he is, uh, is told that whom he's speaking with is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And how that must have just blown his mind. He knew those names. You know, I'm sure he knew the name of Joseph, too. He probably had heard the stories of how the, the, the Hebrews believed that God was going to lead them into a land and was going to prosper them. But they had spent all these generations in Egypt. How could this be? And now he's actually talking with him. What God reveals to Moses here is something that is a foundational truth of 
worship of God, and that is he is holy and we should regard him as holy. The sons of Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, who became priests and ministered, it's, it's further out from here, not too long, but a few years from here, and they were, were, they were the ones that led people in worship. And as they came before the Lord with their um, censers, with fire and the incense, they came, and it seems like they came, they were wasted, they were drunk when they came into the presence of the Lord. You can read the story. It's, we're going to read one verse, but Leviticus chapter 10. And the fire comes out from the censer and it consumes them. Of course, Aaron, their father, is distraught. But we read in verse 3 of chapter 10. And Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy. And before all the people, I must be glorified. So Aaron held his peace. So this is a, a, a principle that's true not only for the Old Testament, it's not only true for Moses when he meets the Lord at the burning bush or when priests come before the Lord, but this is, it becomes a, a truth that is for all time. God is holy and all that come near him must regard him as being holy and he must be glorified in our approach of him. Into the New Testament. Turn with me over to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. There, um, we'll read down to chapter 7, verse 1. We find that Paul is going to exhort the church of Jesus Christ. So again, now we're out of the Old Testament. It's the New Covenant. But the same principle of regarding the holiness of God and having an appropriate response to his holiness is going to be spoken of. So 2 Corinthians 6.14 says, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what, have, what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? Now look here. For you are the temple of the living God. And as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate. Be holy, says the Lord. Do, Lord, do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Verse 1. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. We are to live holy lives. And as we come in worship of the Lord, as we draw near to him in communion and fellowship, we should be so touched that we want to perfect this thing called holiness, being set apart from the world, not allowing any kind of sin to remain in our life. Now, you're not, you can't cleanse yourself enough to be saved, but as saved people who are the temple of God, who has the spirit of the living God living within you, we should want to be holy and set apart. I've said this many times, and I believe it's so true, and I believe it's even illustrated in this Corinthians passage. We are not simply trying to become moral people. There's a lot of people that are atheists that want to be moral people. Amen. But we are people that want to be holy. Amen. And that is different. It's different because we want to look like the Lord. 
Jesus is our example. We want our lives to be lived out the way he lived his life. The Lord says, be holy for I am holy. And we want to do that. So the call to holiness is not some miserable, you know, moral effort that you got to work really hard at. The call is to be like the Lord and is to come into his presence in such a way that we might experience him and commune with him that he would find us acceptable in his presence. So this call to holiness still exists today. We are to be holy people. We are to be a set-apart people. Set apart from others, not better than, set apart because God is in our midst. Did you catch the significance of that phrase that you are the temple of the living God? Your life as a follower of Jesus Christ is a place where the Spirit of God dwells. And this is a pretty amazing experience here in Exodus chapter 3 to see the, the Lord in this physical form and speaking to him. Don't want to take anything away from it, but understand what you have in Christ and under the new covenant is greater than what they had under the old covenant. You have the Spirit of God living inside of you. It's not some mountain that we don't even know where it exists anymore and some bush that was burning that we can't find. You have the, the abiding presence of God with you wherever you go. And we, as the temple of God, collectively, we each as living stones are being put together and where we gather, that becomes a holy place because the Lord is in our midst. And so whether it's gathering in this location or throughout the, this city and throughout this country, inside, outside, all kinds of buildings, it doesn't matter. That becomes a holy place because we are the temple of God and God is in our midst. And the call then is considering this, be holy perfect holiness in the fear of God. Deal with the filthiness of the flesh and the spirit. What I do with my body, but also what's going on inside me, which is so much different than what a legalist would ever try to change. A legalist will try to tell you, you got to take off your shoes if you want to come in this place. A legalist would say, you got to worship on this day. A legalist would say, cut your hair, dress this way, and do all these types of things. But they don't ever deal with the matters of the flesh and the spirit. Let's face it. If holiness is simple as kicking my shoes off, I'm all in. That's easy. But that's not. I mean, this is, I'm not trying to downplay what's happening in Exodus 3. But this idea to take these moments and make them what we really have to do. That's not what it's about. It's about dealing with my flesh. You see, a legalist can have an easy time choosing what day to go to church and what to wear. But what about the way you talk to your wife? Ooh, that's a little different. That's a lot more uh, time spent dealing with my tongue and, and what's going on in my head or how you speak to your children or how you obey your parents or, you know, how you, you treat those authorities that are over you. Now we're talking about stuff that goes deep into my, my heart and my spirit and I need to be dealing with those. So we do this, though, because we want to be like Jesus. What is there in Jesus that you find so terrible that you would not want to pursue a life of holiness? What is it in his character that's not praiseworthy and true and just? And the answer is there's nothing. Everything is beautiful in Jesus. And that we could be uh, shaped and fashioned and live and perfect uh, through the help of God our lives in such a way that we look more like him 
It is a true honor to live in holiness. And so for Moses, he had to regard this. Nadab and Abihu, they ignored it. And I'm afraid that some ignore it today. And they don't think that holiness really matters anymore. It matters. And there's a call and there's a command to do it. Now, you can't get saved by the way you live your life. You can only, only do that through the cross of Jesus Christ. But as a saved person, we live to please him. In verses 7 through 10, we're going to see that Moses is going to be sent by God. And, um, and there's this, this conversation begins. And let's read this together. It says, The Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from the land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Now, therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me. And I have also seen the oppression with, the, with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. So Moses is being sent by God to be that, that representative and to speak for the Lord to let the people of Israel go and to lead them through the wilderness into the, to the promised land. And he'll bring them up to the border. I won't go into it. But you know, when you read this, you're reminded that 40 years earlier, he tried to bring deliverance. Remember when he saw the Egyptian beating one of his brethren? He saw that, he broke up the fight, and then he killed the Egyptian and buried him. He was trying to bring deliverance back then. Now, I don't think Moses says this, so I'm not going to assign it to him. But just imagine for a second if it was somebody like me here. Say, so, yeah, well, I already tried that. That's what would be going, in, going through my mind. I already tried to do this. Where were you 40 years ago when I was having to flee? I mean, if you wanted to deliver the people of Israel, why didn't you show up 40 years ago? We talked a little bit about this last week and that God has a perfect timing. And although I don't understand his calendar, I know his what? His character. I know the character of God. I don't know his calendar. I don't know when he's going to show up and do things. And I can have faith that he's doing the right thing. I think that there are some that would look and say, well, look, I mean, if the Lord really cared for them, then he should have showed up all those years ago. And in, in essence, they end up putting their finger in the face of God and saying, you're not as merciful as I am. Be very careful. Let me just say this. If there is anything that you think you are more merciful or kind or loving or just than the Lord, you're wrong. You're completely wrong. And in your pride, you are lifting yourself up above the name of the Lord and his character. Yes, admittedly, there are things that God does and waits to do and has not done yet that we may think are, should happen right now or should have happened sooner. But don't draw the conclusion that you're more merciful than God. You're not, and you never will be. 
Not in a thousand lifetimes would you ever come close. He has a perfect time set aside. And part of that, as we talked about last week, is this group that he's sending Israel in to drive out of the land. He wanted to give them sufficient time to repent of their sins. He gave them 400 years to repent of their sin. He's told Abraham, I can't send you in right now. Because the fullness of their iniquity has not come in. There will come a time when they need to be judged, but it's not now. I'm giving them opportunity. You can't even imagine to be patient for 400 years. But God's patient for 400 years. And, And he's waiting till that moment. And now it's the right time. Moses is in the right state of mind. He no longer thinks that it's his Egyptian upbringing and the place he holds in the in that country that's going to be the leverage to deliver these people. He recognizes this is far from it, but he promises that he's going to deliver them. He's going to bring them into the promised land. And he says, and Moses, you're my man. Now, what's he going to say? It's about time. I've been waiting. I've been here for 40 years. Didn't you know I tried to do that? No. Look at verse 11. Verses 11 through 18, Moses responds to this call. Uh, he's, the Lord is going to tell him that his name is Yahweh or I am. But his first response to the Lord's call to go and deliver is, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Now, is this just stubborn, um, you know, man that's like, I am not going to do what you want me to do. I don't think that's it at all. He's willing to go, but he has legitimate questions. Like, I don't know that I'm the right guy. I mean, I don't know how this is going to happen. So I see this as he distrusts himself, but it's not a stubborn unwillingness to obey the Lord. It is good to have a distrust of yourself, by the way. I don't have what it takes to to lead somebody to salvation. I don't have what it takes to, to, to do the work of the Lord. As Jesus said in John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. It's good to understand the, in, the, the lack of sufficiency You know, Paul says about ministry, who is sufficient for these things? So it's good to have that humble, broken sense of, I don't have the ability in and of myself. But also when God speaks and says, but I'm going to give you what you need, that's when we need to respond. And isn't that what the Lord has told us to do? So verse 12, the Lord responds to him. He said, I will certainly be with you. That's that's underlinable right there. Here's the difference maker. This is the thing that changes the day. Moses, I'm going to be with you this time. Last time, you did it on your own. Right now, you couldn't do it. I agree with you. But I'm going to be with you. And that is a difference. And this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. You know, when I read this and he talks about that sign, I'm expecting him to do a sign right there, right now. And this shall be a sign to you. And, you know, the bush gets 100 times hotter or something. I don't know. But something, some sign right there, right now, that will tell him what I'm calling you to do is what you need to go and do. But that's not what he does. He says, I'm going to give you a sign. After you obey me and after you go out to deliver them, you're going to come back to this place and you're going to worship here. And that will be your sign. You take this step. We say, give us a sign and I'll step. And the Lord says, I'll give you a sign when you step. And we, you know, we need to understand how the Lord works and how he moves. He calls us to walk by faith, not by sight. And so 
the Lord has shown up and is obviously, this is quite an amazing experience. It's all that he needs to do the next thing. And the Lord is essentially saying, you'll see the confirmation of what I'm saying after you do what I tell you to do. You know, I've shared this story before, but, um, you know, you, you know well, I'm going to put out a fleece before the Lord and I'm going to see what he does. I hope it works for you. It never works for me. Fleeces never work for me. And I'm not saying that they can't. I see them in the Bible. I've, I've, I've said, Lord, if you'll do this, then I will know it's you. And then I always, I always hear the same thing. Yeah, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. So you just need to listen to my voice. You need to obey my voice. You know my voice, Troy. You've got to listen to my voice. And so it's kind of one of those moments. Yeah, I'm going to do this. And you'll know that I did it once you obey me and you see everything that I want to do. But here's the real probing, challenging question. Is God's presence enough to move us into obedience. Is that enough for us? Moses is going to learn the presence of God in his life in such an amazing and powerful way that in a moment of Israel's rebellion, once they are already delivered from Egypt, God is going to say, enough with these rebellious people. I'm not going to travel with you guys anymore. I'm getting off at the next stop. You can go the rest of the way on your own. And what does Moses say? No, no. Lord, you, can tell, you say you're going to send an angel. We don't want an angel. We want you. And if we don't have you, I'm not going anywhere. I'm not leaving my tent if you don't show up, Lord. And, of course, they had been led by the pillar of fire and a cloud. So they, they, they had seen that physical presence of God leading them and guiding them. And Moses was like, no, 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 we don't want an angel. You can keep your angel. We want you. Are we so accustomed to experiencing the presence of God in our life and encountering him, that at the threat of God's presence not showing up, it would cause us to say, I'm not doing another thing. I pray that it is that way for us, that we are that used to communing and speaking and talking with him and hearing from him, that we wouldn't step forward. But I would imagine like me, there's some of you that are thinking, do I know the presence of God? I mean, I know he's there. I know I'm saved and I've had experiences with him. But do I know his presence enough to know that I wouldn't dare step out if he said I wouldn't come? Or, or would it be like, I don't know if I'd know the difference. I don't know that I've had enough experience with the Lord that if he stopped showing up that I would even miss it. That's the probing question in my heart and in my mind. I'm sure some of you are thinking this as well. I think we need to learn to observe the presence of God in our lives. You know, when Jesus was about to, in the Gospel of John, was about to leave, and he's talking about leaving, he said that he would come and make our hearts his home, and that he and the Father would manifest themselves to us. That's a big deal. He lives within us that he might manifest himself to us. If we have question marks around experiencing the presence of God, let me tell you, it's not because it's not what God is doing, and it's not because God doesn't want to. It has to do with your wife. No, it has to do with yourself, right? I mean, we always want to blame it on somebody else. No, it's us. 
It's not the church you go to. It's not the version of the Bible you read. It's, it's you getting alone with the Lord. Amen. It's me getting alone with the Lord and slowing down long enough to experience him. And there's only one person that can control that, and that is you. And you've got to go and meet with the Lord. If you don't have the experience with the Lord that you feel like you should have, why? And so for Moses, he is going to so learn and grow. Of course, it would never be you, honey. Of course, you know, he's going to come to the place and, and he's going to experience God's presence so much. He's like, no, I won't even go without you. We'll shut this whole thing down. This whole Exodus thing, it's over. We're just going to live right here because I'm not going forward. I'm sure that if you take the time and I take the time to think through our life and the things that God has called us to do and the ways we've stepped out, we will see, oh, God's presence was there. And I don't ever want to step out without you. I don't ever want to go down a venture without you, Lord. How beautiful and how wonderful this is. Well, in verses 13 through 15, Moses raises a second question. And he says, uh, Moses said to God, Indeed, when I have come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am, or Yahweh, has sent me to you. Moreover, God said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. I am. And, um, you know, there's a lot that's, uh, to say about the name of the Lord. Had Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob known this name, had Adam known this name prior because when you read in Genesis, what you'll find, and actually we just read it. If you look at verse, where is it? Middle of verse 15, the Lord God. You see how Lord is all capitalized? That's a way to refer to the covenant name of God or to the name of Yahweh or to the name I am. And so throughout the Old Testament, you'll see many places. Not all places are all capitalized. But wherever you see that, this is what the translators uh, did so that you could know this refers to the covenant name of the Lord, which probably most of us miss. Why would they do that? Because when the Hebrew was written, they didn't use vowels. And somewhere along the way, the children of Israel stopped pronouncing the name of God. And so um, nobody knew how to speak to it. So we, all we have for the name of God is YHWH. That would be the, the English equivalent, YHWH, no vowels. How do you pronounce that? And so um, the translators, to deal with this issue, decided to use capitalized uh, letters for Lord. So wherever you read the word Lord in the Old Testament, when it's all capitalized, that is this name that he just got. That is Yahweh. So if you go into Genesis, you'll see that. You'll see this name being used. So the question is, did they know that in the days of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? And then... The 400 years of being in Egypt caused that name to be lost? Or is it now being revealed for the first time? I guess we can't say definitively, but Moses, the author of Genesis, at least uses that name 
um, and recognizes who it is that's working, if not that they did know that name and they simply forgot it. But what does the name I am mean? It's a verb to be. What's it referring to? What's the significance of it? Douglas Stewart gives this helpful summary of the significance of the name of God. The name should thus be understood as referring to Yahweh's being the creator and sustainer of all that exists and thus the Lord of both creation and history. All that is and all that is happening, a God active and present in historical affairs. Well, that's a pretty significant name to people in Egypt that are being held by this oppressor. It's like, I've been there from the beginning of creation. I'm the one that's made this world. I am the one that has been there throughout all these circumstances. If you were to cry out for the provision of the Lord, we could expect to hear the Lord say, I am your provider. If you were to call out in weakness, you could expect to hear the Lord say, I am your power. If you were to call out in, in, in a broken heart to the Lord for the things you're going through, you could expect for the Lord to say, I am your comforter. The name I am, it, it works in any circumstance if you think about it. That name is saying, I am present with you in those circumstances and I will make a difference. So he's questioning, you know, who am I? And the Lord says, I am. There's a word play going on in the Hebrew there. Who am I that you would send me? I am is sending you. And if we could read it in Hebrew and hear it, you would, you would, you would see that word play that is, that is going on. But this name is significant, obviously, right? It's the name of our God. And in the New Testament, this name comes up and it becomes such a controversial issue that they want to kill Jesus without the crucifixion. There's a murder attempt that happens on Jesus' life in John chapter 8 because he uses this name, which is a clear statement of the deity of Christ. Let's read it. It's John chapter 8, verses 53 through 59. And so the, the leaders are, are the ones speaking at first. He says, are you greater than our father Abraham, who is dead? And the prophets are dead. Whom do you make yourself out to be? Who do you think you are? And Jesus said, well, let me tell you who I think I am. If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my Father who honors me. Of whom you say that he is your God. My Father is God, and you say that he's your God. Yet you've not known him. Can you imagine these red faces of these guys? I mean, they're blowing their gaskets. They are so fuming mad. You have not known him. But I know him. And if I say I don't know him, I shall be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Then the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and you've seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Oh, they knew what he was saying. They were thinking of Exodus chapter 3. And when Moses got the, the, the name of God revealed to him, and he makes this statement. Now, of course, it's in the Greek language. But if you were to go and look at this, um, here I am as ego imi. And if you were to go and look at the Greek 
uh, translation of the Old Testament in X chapter, um, Exodus 3, where it says, I am, it would be Yagoimi. He's using the same words here. They understood so much so, verse 59, they took up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple and going through the midst of them and so passed by. I can't wait to talk about the phrase pass by, but you're going to have to wait for that. But we'll come back to it in a few weeks. I don't want to blow that message, but we'll, I'm just it's an interesting phrase here. I am. Who is this? This is, this is an Old Testament appearance of Christ that Moses is having. It's, it's an experience that Abraham had when the angel of the Lord appeared. It, it's, it's a pre-incarnate Christ. It's the Logos. And he's seeing him. And he's experiencing him. And this is an awesome thing. But he dwells within you. Okay, I mean, it's hard to even really take that in completely, isn't it? Is that the living God dwells inside of me. But this is the name you should go with, Moses. You should go with the name Yahweh. This is who is your deliverer. Now in verses 16 through 18, he's told that the elders are going to follow him. I don't have much to say about this, but we will read these verses. It says, go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, you see it, there it is again, all capitals, Yahweh of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, appeared to me saying, I have surely visited you and seen what is done to you in Egypt. And I have said I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites to a land flowing with milk and honey. Then they will heed your voice and you shall come, you and the elders of Israel, to the king of Egypt and you shall say to him, the Lord God of the Hebrews has met, uh, met with us and now please let us go three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. And he says, when you go to the elders, they're going to, eventually things will work out. But you're going to have a little bit of trouble. We'll read about that. But he just says, it's going to work out. They're going to receive you. You guys will go before the Pharaoh together. And you're going to ask to be let go, to go and worship me and, and to return to this spot. Um, so the elders will be for this. Verses 19 through 22, Pharaoh is going to refuse, but I'm still going to deliver you. And so let's read these verses. It says, but I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go. No, not even by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders, which I will do in its midst. And after that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians and it shall be when you go that you shall not go empty-handed, but every woman shall ask of her neighbor, namely of her who dwells near the house, articles of silver, articles of gold, and clothing, and you shall put them on your sons and your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. So he tells them the Pharaoh is not going to let you go. Who's Pharaoh? We believe his name is Amenhotep II, that Pharaoh that's ruling at that time in 1446 B.C. And he's not going to be willing to let you go. But I'm going to persuade him. With my mighty hand, he will eventually let you go. 
this is one hard-hearted dude. I mean, he's going to see ten, well, nine plagues fall upon the land of Egypt, and he will say, okay, you can go. I've changed my mind. I don't care. You know, okay, go. No, don't go. You know, and he's, he's constantly changing his mind, but it's all a manipulation to not let them go. But eventually, when the tenth plague comes, he will be so humbled, and the, the people of the land of Egypt will be so ready for Israel to leave and go worship their God that they'll say, just leave. And what will happen is that the Egyptian or the Israelites will say, well, give us your gold and your silver, you know, give us your jewelry box, basically. Give us your savings account, your 401ks, and your wardrobes, and we'll be glad to go. Fine, here you go, leave, just get out of here. This is how broken and how humbled the people will be in the land of Egypt. But it is interesting here, and so note that he says the women will do this because it was usually the warriors out on the battlefield that were taking the plunder. But it's going to be a different kind of battle because it's not going to be the men that are fighting that win. It's going to be me. I'm going to fight for you so much so that it's going to be the ladies that will ask for this. And they're going to be given it's interesting in the life of Abraham that we have a foreshadowing of this event. Remember when he went down there with his wife, Sarah, because of famine. And while they were there, the Pharaoh wants to take Sarah as his wife. And Abraham says, that's fine, she's my sister. He lies. I mean, it's not a high point in Father Abraham's you know, uh, walk with the Lord. And Eventually, Pharaoh finds out. He's like, what in the world? Why did you trick me? Why did you deceive me? Well, I figured you might want to kill me if you found out she was my wife. He's like, I tell you what. You pack up and you leave and you go. And he gives them all kinds of you know, money to leave. It becomes a foreshadowing of the deliverance that the children of Israel were going to experience. And this is a prophecy. So when we get to the story and read it, you're going to say, oh, yeah, I remember the Lord said that this would take place. It has been suggested by some that maybe this is even like, and thank you for your last 400 years of service. Here is your payment. And so they are going to leave this, um, this land. As we close here, there's a lot of application for our life in this portion of Scripture. Number one, God never forgets. He knows I think we all could do better if we could just include that short little phrase into our vocabulary all the time. God knows. The Lord knows. He knows. Ah, this and this and this. The Lord knows. And he is present with us. And he's not going to forsake us. God has been faithful to raise up for us Jesus as our deliverer. Moses provided a salvation and provided a deliverance for them. It's real, it's amazing, and we're gonna have a great time studying it. But all salvation and all deliverances are only a foreshadowing of the ultimate deliverance that you as a Christian have already experienced. I mean, the, the Exodus, amazing, amazing deliverance. But the deliverance you have is greater. The deliverance you have in Jesus is greater. Do you remember when the disciples return from one of their mission trips and they're given the mission report to you know, one another? Hey, we saw demons being cast out. We saw people being healed. And they're giving each other all these spiritual high fives and talking about it. And Jesus is on the sidelines watching 
And he says to him, he goes, this is great, but let me tell you something. Don't rejoice in those things. Here's what you need to be really excited about. Your name is written in the book of life. That is what should capture your attention. That is what should, should change your day and your outlook. It's not some ministerial accomplishment. So not some display of the power of God. It's good, but that's not what you should rejoice in. What you should rejoice in is that which is with you every day, all day long, your salvation story. And this is where we need to come to. We need to be at that place. So, yes, Exodus is amazing. But don't dare think of trading your salvation as if you could for this salvation experience because this is inferior. It's still a work of God, but it's looking forward to the ultimate deliverance of the king that held us in captivity, Satan. And Jesus came and he took in his body, he paid in his body the, the chastisement for our uh, peace and bruised for our iniquities that we might be set free. I mean, if you could sit down with Moses before Moses knows the story, he knows it now. But if you could sit down with him and say, yeah, you're going to do this, but one day this is what's going to happen. I am is going to come to this earth, and he's going to take on human flesh. And I am is going to uh, be born of a virgin. And I am is going to eventually be crucified for our sins. And the sin of the world is going to be put on him. No, impossible. This can't be. But he's going to rise three days later. And I am will then dwell within us as the living God inside of us as temples. This was greater than anything you read in the Old Testament. And that is in no way to diminish what God did it's just that this is of greater glory, what you already have. If you've not come to Christ, if you've not repented of your sin and asked the Lord to forgive you, do this before you walk out the door and come up and let us know of your decision to follow Christ. But lastly, maybe you're in that spot where you hear the voice of the Lord calling you into something that scares you. And he's saying, I want you to go do this. You're like, I can't do it. Oh, it's good to distrust yourself, but not to be, stubborn, to be so stubborn that you're disobedient. Be sufficiently humbled and recognize you don't have it and call out upon the Lord for his presence and his power upon your life. But don't walk away in disobedience saying, you can never use me. Yes, he can. He's, he's I am. He is the one that can use all of us for his glory and his honor. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word and your truth. How privileged we are, Lord, to have this, this ancient encounter recorded for us of not only what Moses saw, but the conversation that he had with you. And Lord, as we read it, and as amazing and wonderful and as mysterious as it is, it is all very familiar to us. We know, Lord, that we can meet with you. We know that you send us out into this world to be a light and a witness, to speak of deliverance, just like you sent him, just like you sent your son. We pray, Lord, that we'd be obedient to that call. We pray that we would, we would still learn of your presence in our life, that it would become unthinkable to take another step, to live another day without your presence in our life. So Lord, thank you that you hear us when we call. Thank you, Lord, that when we called upon you for salvation, you heard us. 
And maybe you're here and that's exactly what you need to do. Just like I did many, many years ago, I called out upon the Lord and I asked him to forgive me and cleanse me. And he did take up residence in my life. And I am here to tell you that what the Lord said is true. His presence does dwell within those that call upon him. And I'm blessed. I'm I'm no greater than anyone else, but I am just like anyone else who's called upon the Lord. And I want to tell you it's true. And you can begin to have a communion and a fellowship with God like you can never have apart from coming through Jesus Christ. So come to the Lord today. Come to I am and say, forgive me and cleanse me. And he will hear you and he will do just that.